Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. We definitely have risk factors and we also have a culture of acceptance. And that culture didn't start overnight. It's come over years and years. And when I started emergency care, um, it was like my second year in practice. And it was so it was probably like 1997 or 1998, like in January, I started working in the ED. And then I had coworkers who were physically assaulted by an adult male. And the violence was so severe that two of them suffered fractures. One had an arm fracture and the other, I don't remember what was broke. Hi, I'm Jonna Emil, and thank you for joining us for another episode. In this podcast, we'll be talking about violence in the healthcare workplace. Risk factors will be described, and we will delve into strategies to manage this violence, as well as actions we can take to mitigate the impact of workplace violence. Joining me is Gordon Gillespie, nurse. Congratulations, I'm also a nurse. <laughs> RN for over 25 years. Um, and I understand you've worked in the ED, public health, academia. You've done a ton of research on the topic that we're going to be speaking about, workplace violence that's been funded by some big organizations. What else can you tell us about yourself? So it's kind of like a claim to fame, might be a bit bragging rights, but I still enjoy saying it, that I've had practitioners and researchers across six continents cite my work. Amazing. No one from Antarctica, but of course, no one's allowed to live there. So that kind of makes sense. So you're only a little bit famous. Yeah, just a little bit. If I could just find a way to get a permanent resident down in Antarctica to cite me, then you know I'd be all set. But um, but I think what really matters for that, I think, is the fact that it's not um, nursing alone. It's other professions, business, industry, lots of different professions outside of healthcare have looked yeah. at my work and use, be able to use those findings to transform their work environments to be a safer, healthier workplace. Yeah. And the work that, that you're talking about really is the work that you've done around workplace violence, which we're going to get into. And I kind of have to take a moment to <sighs> woosaw because it feels like one of the conversations, you know, the drum we've been beating forever in nursing, let alone healthcare. And it kind of feels like maybe we're getting attention, maybe we're not, like maybe we're solutioning it, maybe we're not, but it's a big topic, it's a loaded topic. And I think um, right now in the state of the world, right, and, and kind of like what we're all witnessing and experiencing, it's come to the forefront again. So let's talk a little bit about workplace violence and defining that. What is that? It, so I would just kind of first want to add that I definitely see a major shift in people having open conversations. I think a lot of that started with the American Hospital Association. I went to a stakeholder meeting in Chicago, um, like probably six or so years ago, maybe seven. And we learned at the time that prior to that year, the AHA, American Hospital Association, told their constituents not to discuss workplace violence. Ooh. Don't use the construct in your, in, anywhere in paper. And so if you're not even allowed to have a conversation about it, it's really challenging to do something to prevent it because you can't prevent something that you can't talk about. And so I think their shift in ideology to saying we now recognize workplace violence. We want our stakeholders, our constituent hospitals, say 4,000, 5,000 hospitals across the country to start discussing it and mentioning it. And that was really a shift. And then they actually had, I think they were our host in Chicago along with the Emergency Nurses Association, the American Nurses Association, 
and the International Association for, um, I think it was Hospitals or Healthcare Safety and Security. I always kind of get their name wrong, but it's IAHSS is their acronym. Okay. But with all of us together, we're really then be able to start talking about what can we do as groups, partnering to try to tackle the problem. And I think that was probably really the um, probably really the number one thing that I think nationwide really kind of helped. Yeah. In in terms of the actual definition, NIOSH, which is the United States National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, they do have a formal definition, and they define workplace violence ranges from offensive and threatening language to homicide. And they also say that as violent acts, including physical assaults and threats of assault directed towards persons at work or on duty. And the thing that people sometimes look at is that there is no such thing as verbal violence. There is verbal abuse. And uh, most nurses I know always talk about verbal violence. And now that I work a lot with criminologists, people in criminal justice field and psychologists, they let me know that violence is a criminal term. It's a legal term, but verbal violence, you can't go to a court and say this person verbally assaulted me and they should go to prison or go to jail. And so a better construct or better word is verbal abuse. And the reason I bring that up is in the definition from NIOSH, they don't talk about verbal, but they do say including physical assaults and threats of assault, which really lets you know that acts of intimidation, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, that is a form on a continuum of verbal violence, or excuse me, a continuum of workplace violence. And with all that allows people to remember that, well, you might say I've only been verbally abused. I only had racial slurs. That's actually a significant assault, not in the legal sense that you can go to jail or prison or be prosecuted, but definitely in the sense that needs to be eradicated. And we need to have systems in place to allow patients and visitors the right to exercise our freedom of speech, but do it in a way that doesn't cause repercussions to them and the ability to receive safe care and safe practice. Right. And it's my understanding too, that when we talk about workplace violence, I believe it was the CDC even broke it down into different types. I think I saw criminal intent, client on worker. Can you talk a little bit about this, how we're breaking up the types of violence aside from that verbal abuse that you're speaking of? Yeah, and I think a lot of that started actually with the California Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Yeah. And I have a colleague that was on that initial panel with the University of Iowa, and they came up with this typology. And there are four types, and which are different from categories. Categories like verbal abuse, sexual abuse, assault. Right. But the typology is really the relationship of the target, who is the worker, in terms of who the aggressor is. And type one is criminal intent. It doesn't happen as much in traditional healthcare because usually we're not dealing with people of criminal origin. However, some places such as if you're an advanced practice nurse working at a clinic in a grocery store or in a pharmacy, or if you're the pharmacist himself, you can have people that come in because you're trying to get to opioids or other narcotics. Mm. Or um, when I worked at a children's hospital, we had nurses who had their purses stolen because they were stored in an area where patients got access. And so that is criminal intent. They're not there to receive healthcare. They're there, there to get something, but they can also be um, in the parking lot. You might find a night shift. When, when I used to work night shift for a long time, and our primary role for hospital security was to patrol the parking lot and guard our vehicles wow. because nobody wants the radio stolen, their windows broke out. And so that would be an example because I'm at work, I am on duty, myself and my property, that becomes workplace violence in terms of type one. Yeah. 
Type two was the one that historically has had the most um, attention over the continuum. And I think there was a, a physician named, I think his last name was Durbin. It was like back in maybe the 70s, I actually first talked about physical assault um, from patients or visitors. And so type two is more about, they call customer oriented or patient related violence. And that's really where you have a person has a legitimate reason to be there. And they're there to receive care, such as a patient or the patient's family members or other visitors. Most often that manifests from the patient, which kind of makes sense given that patients are always in the facility you're at and visitors may or may not be there. So just by sheer volume and, and normality, you'd receive it from patients and by patients. And that tends to display more as physical assaults that's reported. But we do believe that based on research evidence that I've done research and articles I've reviewed, that the highest prevalence is really verbal abuse. And whether it's um, name calling or it's just lewd comments that might question this that sexual abuse versus verbal abuse, a little bit of definition in there. But a lot of it's these ING words also like hitting, biting, kicking, punching. A big misconception is the intent. And what I dealt with a lot, especially when you work with older adults or pediatric care, so both of us have probably seen this, Yeah, the two-year-old bites you, is that workplace violence? And I would say absolutely. It's absolutely workplace violence because it's an act of assault. Had a 30-year-old bit you at a grocery store, would you have said, uh, that's a normal thing in a grocery store? You <laughs> would be upset. You'd be like, call the police. This person bit me. But a two-year-old in a hospital... It can be expected and you can look at it and say, no, there's no intent. They didn't want to intimidate or intentionally harm you. They wanted you to stop something such as inserting indwelling urinary catheter, right. inserting um, intravenous catheter to start IV fluids. Like there's, it makes sense that they're upset and they bit you, but it's still definitely violence. Because if I would say this little baby Gordon or two-year-old bit Jana last week, bit Andrew the week before, would you do anything differently? You'd say, of course, I'm going to have extra people come in and help hold. That's because you know it's not normal. You're not going to report it to the police. You better not bite the kid back. That's <laughs> definitely not good. And I've been involved in having to manage that event before, and that's just not good. But you wouldn't do anything to the person. Just like an older adult who has dementia, Alzheimer's, they might slap you when you're trying to do um, care or an assessment. It's not intentional. But it's still an act of workplace violence that we can implement interventions if we know about it to do better. And so it's, again, it's about the action, not the intent. Yeah, and that's a really then, good point. And type three is, um, I was kind of thinking of like coworkers essentially, but it's um, in nursing most likely, that's what's given more attention nowadays. And that's like bullying. And sometimes they say the word wrong. So I'll try to say it better because it sounds like I say bowling. <laughs> bullying. And so you get these negative behaviors and some people define that you can't say you've been bullied unless it's happened persistently for six months. But me, like, I don't worry about that because in order to change something, how many times do I have to hit you for it to be bad? And if you're, you're getting bullying behaviors, it's more about the behaviors because also bullying by definition implies intent. And again, workplace violence is not really always about the intent. It's about the act. Did the act occur? And if you're receiving bullying behaviors, those should be stopped. But that's definitely between coworkers. You can still have assaults and have other categories of violence. It's just which one predominantly occurs. And historically, when I was early in my career, I've been a nurse for, I think it's 20, 
six years now. And historically, it was really more from physicians, but it was also the background I work with emergency care. So they're throwing a stapler at you. They're trying to do head sutures. And like, is that really more of an assault or is that bullying? But really, they're doing it to be intimidating more than anything else. Right. But nowadays, I think what I've learned is that it tends to be more often between nurses. And nurses will say things such as, I want to make sure that they really know they, they have to do this. And I'm trying to protect the patient. So although I was incredibly humiliating with them on the floor, it was to teach them. Because in true essence, we do know that if you have an emotional injury where something kind of scars you, you will always remember it. And just think about a person who tries to attack you, you're going to remember that. And so if I can create an emotional memory, that's going to be much longer lasting than an educational memory. Such as like, Gordon, like, this is how you do the IV right. But if I said, Gordon, you are so stupid, you have no idea what you're doing. You will always remember that and you probably will definitely do it right the next time. But also that intimidation creates a hostile work environment, which has other untoward consequences. But, but it's definitely type, th- or type three is that coworker aggression, coworker violence between workers, current or previous. And so it can be someone that used to work there. They don't have to currently be employed and they can still be coming back into the workplace. And that's one, if you think about um, the old days, use the term, um, he went postal or she went postal and like the post office worker would come back in. And nowadays we're seeing active shooters. Yeah. Former employees are coming in, unfortunately, on a regular basis. And so those previous employees coming back is still part of type three workplace violence. Then the final category, type four, is one that's really infrequently studied. And I think it's just due to the nature. And that's about um, relationship, personal relationship violence. And with personal relationship, it's most often intimate partners, current or previous. It could be a spouse. It could be a boyfriend, girlfriend. doesn't really matter that definition, but really it's somebody that's in a, a personal relationship outside of just a normal collegial relationship. And I think the reason that category tends not to be focused on is because some people perceive it as it's not the work's job to manage your personal affairs. Right. However, when that person comes into the workplace, where they're calling in every 30 minutes and they're harassing the employee, it's where the employee gets in trouble because they keep taking these personal phone calls. That now is broached into the realm of the workplace environment and how it impacts care. And that's an area that I really believe that it probably happens a lot more. And there's also, I think, that sense of shaming. And do you want to tell your coworkers, my boyfriend or my girlfriend is harassing me or I'm being abused at home and this person's calling me, or the person's coming into the workplace and maybe try to physically intimidate you, but when they come in and do you as the target, they also may potentially harm other employees. And that's the reason why we can't ignore type four, the personal relationship violence, is because there is a strong risk for others, particularly if it's an active shooter event, they're going in for their partner, that who else are they going to injure on the way in and on the way back out? Yeah. And, you know, speaking of risks and speaking of something you said really stuck with me, right? And I chalked it up to, even though it might be expected from that person for whatever reason, whatever they have underlying that we expect this type of response, right? It should not be accepted, right? So that's my big takeaway there. And I'm so curious, like, what is the reality then around that? Because I certainly, and I bet you can too, can think back on patients and think back on experiences where there was a lot of underlying current, a lot of things just orbiting around that patient that you expected a potential response in this way. But, you know, 
really truly like what are those risks factors where are we seeing this happen most often and kind of what's the driving thing here so i think part of it so we definitely have risk factors and we also have a culture of acceptance yes and that culture didn't start overnight it's come over years and years and when i started emergency care um it was like my second year in practice and it was so it's probably like 1997 or 1998 like in january I started working in the ED and then I had coworkers who were physically assaulted by an adult male <sighs> and the violence was so severe that two of them suffered fractures. One had an arm fracture and the other, I don't remember what was broke. Oh my goodness. And so they did prosecute the prosecutors work with them. And it's also kind of rare for police to take a report. And if you do, you've got to go to the police station. So there's systemic systematic barriers to you reporting, but the prosecutor did not drop charges, went forward. And at one point, the judge finally just dismissed the charges and said, it's kind of like other duties as a sign. It's part of the job, which is kind of offensive because if you break my arm, it's legal. But if I spit on a police officer, that's a felony offense. Yeah. And so how do, the, how do you reconcile that? And so when you hear that, basically, you don't count. You just think, you know what? You own it up. And when I first met my... um dissertation chair back in the day, her research was focused on workplace violence and she was talking about it. And I was like, Oh, it happens all the time. And at that point I had literally been assaulted over a hundred times by definition and not verbal abuse, actual physical assaults. And part of that was one of my risk factors is the fact that I'm a man and I work in a predominantly women populated or women people profession, which is nursing men account for maybe 10 to 12%. So the majority of your coworkers will be women. And the department hospital where I worked, I was only one of three men in the building on a typical given night. Security officer, probably the physician, and then myself. And so if a violent patient went out anywhere in the building, it was like they called the violence response team. And during the day shift, that included the maintenance man because it was always a man. And so the maintenance men responded to manage violence, which in hindsight, I'm like, he's not allowed to bring a wrench with him. So what exactly is he going to do? But it was really, we just went manpower as opposed to people power. And over right. the years I've taught folks how to leverage the strength of a woman that may or may not be as strong as a man, depending on the situation and still manage some really aggressive men and do it in a way that minimizes injury to all. But in that situation, because I was a man, I was pretty much, if there was an event in the building, we need help Gordon come. And as a man, you it's in my, in my culture, how I grew up Appalachian, you don't just say, you know what? I'm hundred percent believe in equality. So therefore do it on your own. Right. Like even if I believe in equality, I still need to respond because that's kind of machoism or it's a man's job to help protect women for this type of situation. So I responded. But all of that over the years led me to believe that it's just accepted. And so as a result, I got put in harm's way. And when I met this researcher, she's like, she's looked at me like, you make no sense. And and this is a faculty member, tenured faculty member. And I'm like, well, that's just how it is. She goes, that makes no sense. If you'd gone into a grocery store, do you think the shopping clerks or do you think telemarketers, anyone else in any other industry, even police, would they just say, yeah, it's okay, just get assaulted? And I said, well, no. And so then she got me changing my thought pattern. I've done all my research. I include a component about what do you think about it? And for the most part, most everyone says they have some level of acceptance. And I think it goes not just because of the bigger system, the judicial system, the um, law enforcement system. It's not maybe that they may or may not be helpful. I think that really varies based on who the individual is or who the prosecutor philosophy is. 
But at the institution, if you report a violence, what happens? If you don't report it, then no one can do anything about it. And it becomes this hidden problem. And then as you try to get people to report, and I did one of my studies, my dissertation, even when I was doing that study, some people said, you know, I don't know why we're bothering to do this because nothing's going to change. You're asking us about the problem and we're telling you. And part of it was just trying to get the reporting to increase, because if we can get the reporting to increase, we then design effective interventions that have local context to prevent. Because while it might work at that hospital on the left, it won't work on the hospital on the right because the causations are different. So the more data we get, the better we can do to prevent. But at this hospital, because when they found out my job wasn't there to correct it, it was to provide a report back to the hospital. Then the reporting immediately dropped and it actually, the, the reporting got worse. We're doing all these efforts to make it better and it actually got worse. And then found out was they, that was when the people said, if you're not going to actually do something, you're just wasting our time. So why report? It yeah. just makes us angrier than it was just by being victims. I'm happier being a victim than I am being a person that's been heard and then dismissed. Mm-hmm. So I thought that makes sense. So in terms of, I'm just going to jump in the risk factors that are right for it. Yeah. Um, So one of the risk factors that most everyone knows, and when I do lectures or I'm just chatting with folks, they always bring up mental health disease and disorder. So it's quite often um, schizophrenia or the bipolar disorder, something that's really going to affect a normal response for what I would deem as like a normal reaction. And they process differently with their brain. And if they're not, um, their therapy, whether it's medication or other, if it's not well-maintained or well-managed, they're going to, their perception of the world is going to change. And then they can start to act out more aggressively. And some folks may say that's their fault. It's intentional. Some folks may say it's part of their brain chemistry. It's not their fault. But again, that goes to intent. It doesn't go to the fact that it still happens. Other things are things like substance abuse disorders. um, And people don't always think about it, but smokers, if you have a tobacco addiction and you come in the facility, whether it's emergency department, you're only going to go out a few hours, maybe, maybe eight hours, but in the inpatient setting, you might be told you're going to go without for days. It's an addiction. And as you start to go through withdrawal, you don't act as normal as you normally would. You don't manage stress as well. Cause if your stress mechanism is to smoke and you've been, you've now lost your one mechanism to manage stress, you no longer have an, a, you don't have a way to do that. And what I would say is most people when I asked about things like a, a prevention strategy, I said, what do you do with a person? Like how close do you stand? I'm like, oh, I always maintain a safe distance. And when people always kind of ask how far that is, I always tell them it's spitting distance um, from personal experience. But um, <laughs> That's subjective, you, I guess, and how hard, fast you can spit. <laughs> it is. But, um, but at least like you tell me, like, can you conceptualize four feet, six feet? They have to think about it for a while. But if you think how far can you spit, that's also probably how far you can swing your arm or how far this person can kick. So if you're at least that distance, you really probably want four to six feet. And I think most people could probably only spit a couple, but if you're at least that far away, you're less likely to be punched or kicked without having a chance to at least move away. But most people always know there are certain things you always do for mental health patients, but they don't think about other risk factors such as um, a person who is experiencing pain I've got it. And we found some of our research that about half the patients that or about half the um, employees who were physically assaulted were from things that you would always expect, such as they've got a mental health disease or disorder. They have a previous history of violence or they're potentially there. 
with a partner who is abusive. And so you kind of get stuck in this situation where the aggressor and the victim, and you're like in the middle and all of a sudden you become assaulted because of that relationship. And you got in the middle of something. People always kind of think that really makes sense. Or if they came in with a weapon, if a person comes in packing a firearm, there's a good chance that they're more willing to use a firearm than a other person. So that definitely increases risk. But they don't think about people that come in with dental pain or abdominal pain. And we actually found a large portion of our sample of, of nurses and physicians and patient care attendants who have been assaulted were by these other complaints. And I always kind of believe part of that is I know the mental health person is at high risk to assault me. So I'm going to do things to protect myself. Yeah. The abdominal pain, the toothache, they'll never hit me. That makes no sense. And so I get in their personal space. And if they're experiencing crisis, they don't know how to manage the pain response. And I believe pain is a normal human response. It's part of our body. Whether it's good or bad, I think it's normal. There's extremes that you can't live with that becomes horrible. But when people don't know how to manage that stress of pain or other crises, we get in their space and we're not thinking about protecting ourselves. And so then that becomes this risk factor where it starts to become more and more everyone should be presumed to have a risk to become violent. And I think about it um, like a construct, you say universal violence precautions. We have universal bloodborne pathogen precautions. You assume everyone has HIV. You assume everyone has hepatitis. Nowadays, you assume everyone has COVID when they come in the door and so proven <laughs> otherwise. Right. I mean, it's a new world. But you don't assume everyone can become violent. And we really should. Because if you assume that Gordon come in and he can just assault you at any second, would you interact with me differently? You probably would. You might not say what you were about to say. You might think, you know, that's probably not the nicest thing. I could probably rephrase that. Mm-hmm. Or when this person's asking for something, instead of saying no, or I can, instead of saying, heck no, as some people might even say, you could just rephrase and say, you know, we would like to. However, there's these limitations or we can't prescribe 100 tabs of this where it's not indicated to do a full body CAT scan because of the radiation, we're not probably going to find anything. And that puts you at more risk. And I think if we explain things to people, that can really help. And so as a result, we don't think. Then there's other things that are risk factors. Um, A big one is situational crisis. And I look at it that as much as I would love to eradicate violence 100%, it will never completely go away. And I had some people that I worked with that I did a research trip to Cuba back, um, I think it was like uh, in 2011 or so, we went to Cuba with a group of emergency nurses. And my angle while I was there was to look at workplace violence. And it was a hard thing for the Cuban community, the nurses, because they said they don't understand what that means. And we, at one point, myself and the president of the Emergency Nurse Association, we were there kind of pretending like to box. And they were like, no, that would never happen. Why would a, per- why would a patient ever hit a nurse? I'm like, well, it happens a lot in the United States and other countries. And they were just shocked. But I think a lot of it is the cultural differences. Yeah. But also they think about things and they know about situational crisis and they assume everyone's going to act out. And so what they do is knowing that a person is going to act a certain way. Like if you've become been diagnosed with a physical disability or you've had a major car crash or car um, trauma and you've spinal cord injury, you're not going to be able to walk. You're probably going to assume that person is going to be upset, right? You can't walk, you can't drive, you probably can't keep your same employment anymore. What's going to happen to your world? You're not going to see, no way, it'll be okay. I'm sure somebody will help you. Just go home and have a good day. That's probably not going to happen. They're going to become upset. They're going to scream. They might be cussing. It's not a 
that's going to take it out on you because you're there, but it's not because of you. It's because of the crisis, the situation. And so there in Cuba, they were like, we talked to families early on and the patients say, we know you're going to act this way. We know it's normal, but we're going to ask you not to do those things because that makes us fearful to take care of you. That could cause harm to us. And if it does, then there's no one here to take care of you. But this is how you can do when you're feeling this way. This is what you should do. And we know what's going to happen and it's okay. But when it does, this is what we want you to do so that we can help you to be safe and for us to be safe. And it's a very proactive way. And it really, think about it, it really is that idea of everyone can act out. Very smart. And then there's things such as um, age and gender. And I look back at when I was younger, I had a whole lot more energy. (laughs) I just hit my 50th birthday last month. And it's like, I am uh, nowhere near as um, just robust, you could say, as I was when I was in my 20s. And when the patients would come in, I was like bouncing off my chair person came in, like maybe leg came in first, the other leg came in, and then a little bit later, the find the body came in and we were resuscitating to actually survive this person. And it was like, I thought it was just all exciting to have the person come in in pieces. Like it's really not normal, but I was an adrenaline junkie, emergency trauma center. Yeah. What do you do? But with all that, I was really hyper. And those kind of things don't always work well when you have a family under stress, right? It's like, I really need somebody to listen to me and be empathetic. I don't need you acting like the man cheerleader in the crowd during this horrible time in my life. And so what I kind of look at is that nurses with more years of experience, they look at a situation and think, I want to live today. I think I'll act differently with that person. Turn it down a notch, maybe. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm invincible. I want to go have fun. This is going to be cool. The other nurse is like, yeah, I really just want to live, you know, live to fight another day. That's and it. so nurses with more years of experience look at a situation differently and they know how to mitigate risk and they still provide the care, but they're not going to do it the same personality type, or they might just be able to look at subtle cues and say, you know, I've been hit enough in my life that looking at that guy right there, it just don't look right. And maybe we need to take someone else in with me because something about this, I don't know what it is. But something's not right. And I need, I need a backup person. Yeah. Whereas the gung-ho younger person, yeah, I haven't really seen anything. This person looks like every other person, but they don't see those subtle signs. And used to kind of think that it was years of experience, but I think it's also just maturity. And the more you age, you, look, you have more experiences. So I think it's coupled between both years of experience and just general maturity with age. Yeah. And then one that I find fascinating, and of course, there's no strong evidence. It's more about my impression, but those who are married tend to have lower rates of assault. Um, And I don't know that it's significant, but it's like, that's the trend. And I think a lot of it is if you can navigate a marriage and stay married, you can navigate a violent person (laughs) because, you know, sometimes I need to write that down and I'm going to tell it to my (laughs) husband. (laughs) And I can say I've now been married for 30 years. So I got married in my teens to a lovely lady and we've been married for a long time. And it's one of those you learn when to fight and when to walk away. Like the, I think it's a Kenny Rogers song or something about playing cards. When, when to hold and when to fold. <laughs> that's right. Yes, exactly. And so if you can stay married happily, so that's the challenge. If you're happily married and you can do that, you've done things and you've learned, is it really worth arguing a point that doesn't matter? And some nurses or the healthcare workers, they'll argue the point because I need them to understand. And when I've done some research, I've had people say, 
I needed them to understand why we did this. I needed them to understand why they were wrong. And all I wanted to say was you needed to have a rationale to be hit. I mean, it's not that it's really your fault for what you did, but you also increase the risk. And I think that's when if you can navigate a really healthy relationship, you're practicing every single evening when you get home from work. You're practicing every single morning when you're fighting for the hot water or the space <laughs> to brush your teeth or who's going to let the dog out before you leave. Whatever it is, you've learned the art of negotiation and tolerance and patience and listening, which is really important pieces. And that's why that's my reason why I believe that people that are really well partnered have lower rates of violence enacted against them. In this first episode, we've covered a lot of ground. We've come a long way in acknowledging that violence does exist in healthcare and research is being done on the topic. And we defined what violence is and identified some risk factors. Join me for the next episode as we continue the conversation. This is Jana Emil for Elite Learning. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.